Good morning, friends and church family. Thank you for joining us as we continue in our series in Matthew chapter 9. I had the wonderful surprise of walking into the worship center and seeing your beautiful faces taped to the back of the chairs. Of course, there's, a, there's some of you who sarcastically still took pictures of you sleeping or picking your nose, but I'm thankful for even you, and I love you dearly. I think of uh, Paul and the way he described the people that he got to lead and, and pastor as his joy and his crown. And, and man, is that true of how I feel about you. You are my joy. Uh, to be able to pastor you, to be able to, to shepherd uh, in this church, to be able to worship alongside of you, to be able to, to suffer even in this pandemic with you is, is the greatest joy and the greatest thing that I think I could do with my life. And so I'm just so thankful for you and thankful for the encouragement you've given me today. It's just amazing. Um, and for those of you who did take pictures of yourself sleeping or picking your nose, I pray a special conviction on you today uh, as you pay even more attention uh, to the word being preached. Um, how about we do this? How about we open up in just a word of prayer, asking God for humility and for uh, our eyes to be sharpened, our mind to be clear, so that we can take in what it is that God wants us to see from this text. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for these dear friends, for the sweet church, Father, that loves being together. It makes my heart happy to know that they're not celebrating the fact that they can't come to church. They're not celebrating a, a, a Sunday to watch from the couch in their PJs, Father. They're, they're longing to be together. They want to be uh, with each other and, and to be the family of God gathered once again. God, I thank you for uh, this flock that I get to pastor, Father. I thank you for the encouragement they are in, in my soul. Father, the way that you have shaped and, and changed me as I've pastored them. And Father, I pray right now that you will transform them even more into your image, Lord. Be, uh, let the gospel be a blessing in their life right now as they hear the good news of Christ as they see it in Matthew 9, and as they continuously to submit their hearts and their minds and their entire lives to Jesus the King. God, we love you. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. So if you just want to pause the video at this point and turn there, that's great. I'm just going to begin reading in Matthew 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then will they fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Well, Tolkien readers will be familiar with the quote, All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The quote is a subtle warning to not base one's expectations and judgments merely on what one sees. In context, if you've never read the book, I don't think it ever says it in the movie. If you've never read the book, I just want to help you understand the context of it. In context, the quote is an introduction to Strider, the dirty, homeless ranger who under his grimy surface is actually the long-awaited king. That quote came to mind as I continued to read and reread the questions and the confusions of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the disciples of John in Matthew 9. They were looking for the Messiah, the gold of the Davidic covenant, of the Davidic promise, this promise that there would be a son of David who would reign forever in power and majesty over all the nations. They were looking for that gold, and yet, here is this man standing in front of them who was the son of David, and yet, he did not glitter like gold. 
He didn't look like gold. To them, he was a lost wanderer instead of a wanderer who had come to save the lost. Their messianic expectations were absolutely shattered as Jesus ministered to those around him. The scribes heard Jesus forgive the paralytic sins, and they assumed that he was just a mere man, and therefore he was a blasphemer. They did not expect the Messiah to be God in flesh. They expected him just to be another man, just to be another person, an Israelite, a faithful Israelite who would be king. And yet Jesus, as the son of David, has the authority of God. The Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners. In their minds, the Messiah was supposed to come and judge such people and condemn them and push them out of Israel. And yet Jesus, as the son of David, comes to them and eats with them and welcomes them at his table. Now in the passage at hand, the disciples of John could not understand why Jesus and his disciples did not fast, or at least did not fast as often as they did. At the heart of their question was the reality that this Nazarene, Jesus, simply did not fit their mold or their expectations. He was the treasure of heaven, but they rejected him because he did not glitter as they expected all gold to do. And so as we approach Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17, Tolkien's warning that all that is gold does not glitter and not all those who wander are lost applies to our expectations of Jesus. Jesus came not to fulfill our expectations or to fit our molds. Jesus came to fulfill all of the beautiful promises of God. Now as we approach this passage, it's worth taking the time to survey the landscape of the text. In its greater context, the passage falls into the section where Matthew is proving Jesus' authority over all things. He is the authoritative, kingly son of David, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has the ability to, to heal. He has the ability to drive out demons. He has the ability to forgive sin and even to still the wind and the waves. But it's also in this section on authority that Matthew wants us to see the beginnings of the opposition from the scribes and the Pharisees and from the religious elite in Judea. And so looking at this text from a big picture perspective, we see that Matthew's purpose is to display the person of Christ, the son of David, in all his glory. And yet as you read this specific passage, these three verses, um, you begin to see that this dialogue with John's disciples also puts forward a secondary purpose as well, which serves as a subtle call to fast. And so in this sermon, it's it's really challenging to to nail down just a one-purpose statement. This text wants us to fast. That's the purpose of this text. But this text also wants us to see the glory of Jesus and all of his authority as the son of David. And so I've got those two goals in mind as we're approaching this text and as I'm going to be preaching. I want you to see those two points. Number one, we are to fast as disciples of Jesus. We are called to fast. But number two, we are to consider carefully the person of Christ and the kingdom that he is bringing And both of these points, I'm going to be pressing hard on the truth that Jesus is a glorious and beautiful Savior who is not a tame God, who is not a God that can fit into our molds, but he's a God who has come to bring the new covenant kingdom whereby we may be reconciled to God in Christ. Now, the disciples of John are one of three encounters that Jesus has with the religious groups of Judea, each group having their own questions. We, we, we read in a, a few weeks ago about the scribes, um, and then we read about the Pharisees, and each one comes to Jesus with some kind of confusion or some kind of question. The scribes don't understand how he has the ability or the authority to forgive sins. The Pharisees don't understand why he would eat with tax collectors. And now we get to the disciples of John. 
These disciples followed John the Baptist. This was the very same John who, when he saw Jesus coming, recognized him and declared him as the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. Obviously, if you're John's disciples and you hear that, your interest is piqued. And yet, even with their interest piqued, their questions remained. So they come and ask Jesus bluntly, according to their own confusion, why do you guys not fast? Surely this man who has the authority to forgive sins, surely this man who's, who, who, room, who, of whom rumors are spreading throughout all Judea, that he has power that has been attributed to God alone, surely this man would not deny the importance of fasting. Now, I read this, and sometimes I am unsympathetic with the scribes, the Pharisees, and John's disciples. And sometimes, you know, I, I felt myself doing this this week. I'm just like, come on. These are John's disciples. They should have gotten it. They should have understood it. But I think we need to be careful. We're absolutely right in seeing that they are ignorant of who Jesus is. They have a complete misunderstanding of who Jesus is. But we must not be too harsh on them. Even John, their their master, their their rabbi, the one that they followed, during his pre- imprisonment, struggled in his faith. When we get to Matthew eleven three later, even John, in his imprisonment, probably a little bit of, of discouragement, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So it even happened to John. It can happen to John's disciples, and it can happen to us. The fact that John, in Matthew 11 and that John's disciples in Matthew 9 are confused about the Savior should humble us. Had we lived in those days, had we been around when Jesus was walking on the earth, there is little reason for us to think that we would have been the ones to see so clearly what everybody else could not see, or to understand so perfectly what even the religious, religious elites could not understand. We wouldn't have. My friends, the only reason we understand who Jesus is and we marvel at his beauty and we glorify him, we praise him and we accept him and worship him as the Davidic son, as the eternal king, as the son of God, is because the spirit of God has shined light into our dead and blind hearts to reveal him. Without a doubt, had we had been there, we'd have been right there with them, scratching our heads. This is not the Jesus that we expected. And I hope as we see later, we still do that from time to time. We're no better off than they are. We're reading retrospectively and saying they should have known. And yet at the very same time, we have to understand our own dependence on God to make known Christ to us. Blindness towards Jesus' identity is germane to the fallen human condition. We are helplessly clueless about Jesus until the Father sovereignly speaks light into the darkness of our hearts. So be careful of being too harsh or being too critical on these disciples of John. Their confusion is misplaced. They have a clear misunderstanding of who Jesus is, and yet it's absolutely understandable because they have not had the light shine into their dark hearts just yet to reveal who Jesus is and to reveal who he was. And such were you before you became a Christian, before God sovereignly awoke your dead and lifeless heart that was dead in sin. So, we, we read knowing that these disciples don't understand Jesus, but we read sympathetically, knowing that we wouldn't have either. So just, I, I find it helpful, helpful to just pretend that you are John's disciples. If you want to know who you, should, who you should pretend to be at this moment, who you should sympathize with, sympathize with John's disciples. You are coming to the Savior. You are coming to Jesus, this uh, uh, man from Nazareth, he, who, who people are starting to whisper that he might be the Messiah, and you have a question. So here's the question. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? Now, it doesn't say it in your English Bible, but some Greek texts say, why do we and the Pharisees fast often? So it's not saying that 
the disciples never fast. It's just simply saying they don't fast as often as the Pharisees and John's disciples. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast often? Now, fasting was essential to the Jewish life and worship. In fact, it was commanded during such festivals like Atonement Day. Some groups did it more often than others. For example, the Pharisees proudly boasted about doing it twice, twice a week. You see that in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, where the Pharisee stands up and says, I, boast twi- I fast twice a week. It was a, it, was a, it was a point of pride for some groups. But if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, and you look at fasting from an Old Testament perspective, we find a number of reasons a person would fast. A person might fast because of mourning, because they have lost someone they loved, or because of a sad uh, uh, epic in Israel's history. They might fast because they are making a focused petition, asking for God's help and intervention. At other points in the Old Testament, people fast when they repent, when when they're repenting of sin and turning from sin. But in all of these reasons for fasting, the one common denominator is a longing for God, a hunger for His presence and blessing, for His restoration, for His forgiveness. And so fasting, from an Old Testament perspective, that shows that it is a longing and groaning for God and His kingdom, a, lo- a longing for God to let the justice, His justice roll down, a longing for God to establish righteousness on earth, a longing for God to restore His fallen people. Fasting is a right and proper way to long for God in the many different situations of life. It's right to fast when you face temptation. It's right to fast when you're repenting of sin. It's right to fast when you're mourning. It's right to fast in times of fear. So in that light, we must not see fasting as just another pharisaical ritual or some some legalistic tendency that these disciples of John are bringing to Jesus. They're not bringing something that's unimportant to him. If fasting is longing for God, then it's absolutely crucial. So if fasting is longing for God, then why do Jesus' disciples not fast and long for God as often as they do? Now Jesus' answer to the question is profound. He says this, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, Jesus' metaphor in this verse reveals that there is much more to Jesus than meets the eye. He's not just another rabbi. He's not just another leader of another Jewish group. He is Israel's bridegroom. Now, this, this was a title that throughout the entire Old Testament was attributed to Yahweh alone. Isaiah 54, 5 reminds us, uh, reminds Israel, for your maker is your husband, your God, your maker, your creator, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Hosea chapter 2 verse 16 speaks of the day when Israel will once again come to Yahweh and call him my husband. So in Jesus' metaphor, the bridegroom's presence meant that this was a time for joy. The God of Israel, the bridegroom of Israel had come. That Jesus calls himself the bridegroom implies that their longing for God is at least at this point over. Their longing, their craving, their hungering for God, for the bridegroom can be satisfied in him. Their mournful craving for God and his kingdom at this moment is inappropriate. Because God and his kingdom had come. The bridegroom had come to seek out his bride. And so for his disciples to fast in the joyful presence of the bridegroom would have been contradictory. It'd be like showing up to a wedding feast or to a wedding dressed like you're coming to a funeral. Or or coming to a wedding reception and refusing to eat because you're so sad. Now, if anyone did that, we'd all think they're strange and weird. We'd probably put them at great aunt table who has kind of lost her mind anyway we'd kind of put her in the put him in the corner 
And that's what Jesus is saying here, is that it's absolutely inappropriate to fast in the presence of the bridegroom. This is a time of mourning. This is a time of joy, not a time of mourning. Fasting is when you mourn and you groan and you long for the, the presence of the bridegroom. And yet, at this point, as the bridegroom is standing in front of them, fasting was simply incongruous for the celebration at hand. Jesus goes on to say, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, the words taken away draw to mind Isaiah 53, 8, which says, By oppression and judgment he, the suffering servant, will be taken away, or was taken away. Now, with that possible illusion, it's, it's quite likely Jesus is talking about his future death. But he's also talking about his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. There's going to be a day when the bridegroom is not physically present with the guest of the wedding anymore. There's going to be a day when the bridegroom is not seen by the, by their physical eyes, that they can't touch him and eat with him and, and speak with him in that way. So a day would come, and on that day, the disciples of Jesus would fast. Now notice the decisiveness with which Jesus speak, with, with which Jesus says this prophecy. The days will come. Okay, so it's a certainty that the day will come. Well, it has come. Jesus is not physically with us right now. He is with us. He promised to never forsake us. He promised never to leave us. However, I think we must admit that his presence is not here in the way it will be or in the way it was when he walked in Judea. It's not a physical presence that we can physically be with him even though he is still with us. So a day will come when the bridegroom is taken away. And then it says, and then they will fast. Not then they might fast, or then they will fast when they feel like it, or then they will fast whenever Lent rolls around. No, it says then they will fast. So I I just think as as we read this text, and as we consider what Jesus is saying here, And he's declaring that the bridegroom has come, that the bridegroom would eventually be taken away, and then his disciples would fast. I think we're left to ask several questions. Have our lives reflected the truthfulness of what Jesus has prophesied here? Are we those who groan, who mourn for the bridegroom to return? I mean, Jesus is speaking of fasting as if it's a mourning. It's a a time to groan. For the lack of having the bridegroom with us. For the fact that the bridegroom is absent physically. Are we fulfilling Jesus' prophecy when he says, They will mourn, they will fast on that day when I'm not with them, they will fast. Do we hunger for the king and his eternal kingdom more than we hunger for things like food or entertainment or social gatherings? These questions are intended to cause us to evaluate ourselves, not to just bring shame. It's simply to evaluate how are we longing for God. We know that the bridegroom had come, and we often speak about how great it would have been to see his face, to walk with him on the road, to hear his voice. And yet he's been taken away. He's not physically with us. We can't hear his voice audibly. We can't see him with our eyes. We can't touch him with our hands like John says. We don't walk with him down the road, although we know that he is with us. Do we ever ever just mourn that we don't have him physically with us? That it's just, we, we want him. We want him with us. We want him to be here. Well, no one perfectly hungers for God in the way they should. However, I think if we do fasting properly, we will see our hunger for God grow to to be even better than it was. So I think one clear application that comes from this passage is that we, as disciples of Jesus, should fast. Then they will fast. Who was Jesus talking about when he talked about disciples who would fast when he's taken away? Well, that's us. 
So the clear application, I don't think we could, we could ever approach this text without simply making the point that Jesus expects his people to fast. He's not outmoded it. It's not an outdated thing. It's not a legalistic thing. It is something we should do. And so I thought it'd be good to give some tips on how you can fast. But before I give those tips, I, I want to I think through what fasting is and isn't according to the way we see it in Scripture. Fasting is not self-flagellation. In other words, it's not some aesthetic physical punishment to where you try to shrivel yourself up because you don't deserve the good cheesecake. That's not what fasting is. Fasting is a subduing of the flesh for the sake of redirecting our true hunger, giving up eternal giving up earthly, temporary things in order to attentively meditate on the eternal things of heaven. We temporarily give up temporary food in order to redirect our real hunger to be for things that are eternal. Fasting is not simply giving up food and other things in the way many people understand Lent. When when I've had friends celebrate Lent, they always kind of Ah, it's Lent. I've got to figure out what I've got to give up. What am I going to deprive myself of? And it's always interesting to hear what people's answers are. Some people are like, I'm going to give up Whataburger for the week, but I'm just going to go across the street to Chick-fil-A. It's just always interesting how we we treat fasting as if it's some kind of deprivation of, of, of food or a specific thing. But it's not actually just deprivation. It's not meant to empty you as much as it is meant to fill you. Fasting is meant to fill you. It is a refocusing of your heart on what it is that actually fills you up and satisfies you. What fills you up? Not a Whataburger. What fills you up? Not entertainment. Not Netflix. What fills you up? Not other people. The, the, the truth about what fills us up, the truth about what satisfies us, the truth about what ends our hunger, the truth about what quenches our thirst is that Jesus and Jesus alone fills us up and satisfies us. We can go a day without food. We can go many days. In fact, you can go a lifetime without technology. We can abstain from other things like Netflix or or. Uh, Facebook, indefinitely. But we cannot even live one moment without our God. We cannot live one moment without the grace of Christ. We cannot survive one second without the filling that Jesus has given, without His satisfaction inside of us. He fills us up. True bread, ending our hunger. He quenches our thirst. True water, so that we will never thirst again. Fasting reminds us that all these other things we can give up. But we can't give up Him. Fasting is not a mere religious ritual. It is a kind of relational groaning. Uh, I've heard other pastors, one, one of them being John Piper, mention how they were uh, in their early dating years with their wife, how uh, they would skip lunch any time that their wife, would, their girlfriend at the time, would send them a letter. And they would just go off and run off and, and spend time reading the letter and how that was better to them than food. I know for myself, when uh, my wife isn't with me or I can't be with her as much. I just, it's just not as joyful as a time. It's, the ice cream's not as sweet. The food's not as good. Um, and so really what we have here in fasting is some kind of relational groaning equivalent to what if your, your children were taken away from you for a period of time or your wife couldn't be with you for a period of time. Or right now, you're experiencing it with social distancing and not being able to be together as a gathered church family. That groaning that we have inside of us, that's more like what fasting is. It's an outward groaning of who Jesus is and, and the fact that we can't be with him right now physically, that he's not with us physically. It, it, he's the greatest object of our affection. He's the, he's the greatest, purest, most good God that we could ever have. 
He's the Savior. He's the one true King. He's the one that gives us life. He's the bread of life, the water of life, the shepherd who lays down his life for us. And so when we think about him and we think about the fact that he's not here yet, that he hasn't returned yet, there's a kind of groaning and mourning. God, can you bring that day? God, can you, can you, can you make that happen? Come soon, Lord Jesus. We want you to come. Establish your kingdom on earth. And then finally, fasting is not impractical or purposeless. I've heard a lot of people talk about fasting like, I just don't get the point of it. Well, it's not pointless. If anything, it's preparation. We fast now while our bridegroom is away so that we can purposefully ready our hearts for the day that he will split the clouds, he will set the table, and we will feast at the kingdom's table as sons and daughters of God together in the presence, face to face with our king. A wedding feast is coming. We know it's coming. It's been promised. A table's being set for the nations. And, and one day when Christ comes back, Chinese and Russians and Malawians and Ugandans and South Africans, Spaniards, Germans, English, Canadians, rich, poor, black, white, they will all come from east and west and they will sit at the table and we will feast of the food in the kingdom with our Savior. But until that day comes, we groan and we mourn and we long for it to be here. When is it going to come? My kids eat a light dinner and go to bed early on one day of the year. There's one day of the year my kids joyfully eat just a very small meal and joyfully volunteer to go to bed. That's Christmas Eve night because they know that if they go to bed early, if they know that if they, they eat just a small meal, eat real quick, that there's a whole day of feasting and eating and celebration coming first thing in the morning. And so they go to bed early. You just see them running off to bed. See you in the morning, Dad. Never, never, any other time of the year can you ever get them to go to bed early. You have to tie them down. We don't really tie them down, but you figuratively have to tie them down and lock them in their room to get them to go to bed early. But on Christmas Eve, they know big day is coming, a big celebration, a big feast, lots of joy, lots of food, lots of hot chocolate in our family. And so they willingly go to bed now in preparation for that day. My friends, we fast now, even though it's inconvenient, even though it's not the, the funnest thing to do by any means. But we fast now so that we can feast, so that we can enjoy the feast, so that we can prepare our hearts to feast. My friends, the worst thing to do is to go through this entire life without preparing ourselves for the day when Jesus will return and establish his kingdom's feast. We want to be prepared now. We want to ready our hearts to repent of sin, to uh, fix our, our to, to ask God to fix our affections and our adoration so that when that day comes, our hearts will be ready to receive food from our Savior. Now, far too often, I think we approach fasting as a burden to be avoided. And when we do, we miss the great value. And I know many times in my life, uh, it seems like fasting, uh, when I fasted, it was only a day that I gave up food. I just went through the whole day without eating. And I just remember wondering, why, why am I doing this? Why, why does anybody do this? Why would we fast? Um, but I've, as I've grown more in my walk with the Lord, I've realized that fasting, when it's done rightly, can give a trackable result, a, a, a trackable growth. It is an intentional time of growing. It is an intentional, purposeful time of, of concentrated meditation on Jesus. 
And so I've, I've come to find that the more I've fasted, the more I've studied Scripture, and the more I've learned and asked God to help me how to fast, I've, real, I've come to realize that fasting is actually one of the most uh, beneficial and fruitful things we can do in a disciplined walk with God. It's not just making our stomachs grumble, and not everybody can give up food. Some people can get, everybody can give up Netflix. Some people can give up social media. And so we're not just talking about giving up food, but we're talking about creating space in our lives that will allow us to intentionally walk slowly with the Lord, to take a slow walk with Jesus, just to take that time to enjoy communion with Him. So that being so, how can we make our fasting more intentional? What are some ways that fasting can be more effective and so that we can get through a day of fasting without thinking, ah, I just deprived myself of food or just deprived myself of Facebook or Netflix. How can we get through fasting in such a way and, and, and observe fasting in such a way that it is effective in our lives? Well, I have seven tips I think that might help you. The first step is to identify identify. Consider what it is that takes the most of your focus, the most of your time, the most of your affection. It may be food. Who doesn't love to eat? I mean, I know for myself, I eat breakfast and then I'm immediately thinking about what am I going to have for lunch? Uh, Right now, stay at home. Titus comes in at nine o'clock, at 10 o'clock, and at 11 o'clock and wants to know when is the next snack time? When is lunch going to be ready? So everybody loves to eat. It may be social media or Netflix. Social media and entertainment take a lot of our time and attention. It often steals away much of our focus of Jesus, if we're honest. When we wake up, first thing we do in bed as we start to wake up, click on Facebook, click on Instagram. What do you do as you're getting ready for your day that morning? Click on Facebook. Some of us can spend up to hours and hours in the day on social media Or we can veg out in hours of Netflix. And I'm not shaming you for having a Facebook or for Netflix. It's simply to say that giving up Netflix, Facebook, food for a day will give you tons of time to adore and relish in Jesus. So whatever it is, whatever it is that is taking the the most of your focus, your attention, and your affection, that's the thing that you're called to fast. That's the thing that you should give up. So you may say, my doctor will not let me fast. I have to eat my meals for my blood sugar or whatever. If that's you, great. There's lots of other things you can fast from. I'm sure your time, your focus, your attention are going to many other things. It might be watching Fox News. It might be watching CNN. Have you ever thought about going a day without watching CNN and Fox News and keeping up on Trump's Twitter page? How great would that be just to focus on Jesus for a day instead of trying to figure out the latest in politics? When we fast, we're not mandated to give up food only. We're we're asked, we're invited into temporary giving up of the things that still away our affection and attention. And the purpose of that is so that we don't give them our attention and and affection anymore that we begin to identify problem areas in our lives that take too much, that take more than we're willing to give. Second, look. Our brains, your brains, are not empty vacuums. Our brains are incredibly, our our, our brains are, are susceptible to influence. I mean, it's often been said at conferences and in, in youth groups, do not think about a white bunny sitting on pink grass. Well, what did you just think of? A white bunny sitting on pink grass. Your brain is moldable. Your brain is able to be influenced. You simply can look for just a few milliseconds at an at a, uh, 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 advertising board on the way to add a billboard, on the way into work, and immediately an image that you see for a millisecond could shape your thoughts for the entire day. A quick 30-second commercial can change and redirect all the things you think you need in life. So whatever you look at is whatever is going to govern what you think about. That's why pornography holds such a strong power over people. Because what people see, what people look at, governs what they think about. 
It goes much deeper than just a mere look or a mere glance. So in our fasting, if we want our fasting to be more effectual, if we want our fasting to be more intentional and to be more fruitful, then one of the things we have to do is we have to pay attention to what we look at. One of the things I'd recommend you to do after you've identified what it is that you're going to give up for that day or for that season is to find several passages that make you think about the goodness of God. Find passages of Scripture that will shape and stir up your thoughts about the majesty of Christ, the beauty of the Savior, the the awesomeness of His kingdom, the amazing promise of His presence. Find uh, scriptures that tell you much about your relationship with God. Things like Ephesians 2, which talks about you and you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Or find Revelation 21, which talks about literally heaven coming down on earth and, and God declaring from the throne, I will be their God and they will be my people. Find texts like that and look at them, read them. Have them on little uh, five by seven cards that you just walk around and you read them day in and day out. Tape them up in your study space. Tape them up where you do the dishes. Open up your scriptures to them and highlight them. Study them in the morning. Look at them again in the afternoon. You have to be in control of what you look at if your fasting is going to be effective. Well, that leads to the third step. So we've identified, we've looked, and now we behold. Looking and beholding are related but distinct actions. Looking, simply looking. I can look anywhere. But beholding is a long, lingering look. It's a meditative look, a thoughtful looking. Put another way, beholding is like gazing upon or fixating upon something. After you've looked up these scriptures, after you've read them and you've seen the, behold, the, the beautiful truths, behold them. Turn them over in your mind like a jewel, like you would gazing at a diamond, looking at all of its different facets. Dig in deeper into the text to find the pure gold that is buried underneath the surface of the language. Set yourself time to, to search And find the face of Jesus in the scripture that you've selected. Behold the gospel. Look thoughtfully for the gospel. Consider carefully the gospel in that text. So identify, look, and then behold. Identify the problem. Identify something to give up. Look at scripture and then behold the gospel and the face of Jesus in that text. And then fourth is to petition. Make your petition. Turn the passage into a prayer. Pray the scriptures. If, if you're in Ephesians 2, 1, turn into thanksgiving. God, I thank you that while I was dead in, in, in my sins and trespasses, you made me alive together with Christ. Turn Revelation 21 into a groaning petition. God, will you bring this day now? Will you, will you bring Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem down Uh, on earth? Can we have the presence of Christ again? Please, will you send Jesus? Turn it into a longing petition. Ask God for a greater affection for Jesus. Consider how this text that you've been beholding and reading, how does it stir up your longing for the things above? How does it wean you off of the things here below? And ask God to continue doing that good work in your life as you continue your fast. And that hopefully will lead you to confession. That's the fifth step. In order to long for the presence of God, we have to hate our sin. Loving God and loving sin are two things that clash and they do not go together. Wanting God and wanting other things is a daily battle that every believer faces. From the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed that night, it is a daily battle to keep our affection centered on God. And we are naive to think that we desire God as fully as we should. We're naive to think that we cannot grow in our affection for God. And we're foolish if we think in, in, that we can be content with what our longing is currently. We must desire to want Him even more. We must desire to long for Him even more. So that said, we should prayerfully confess whatever it is in our lives that is stealing away 
our affection and longing for God. What are the residual sins in your life that are keeping you from loving God as fully as you could? What are the things in your life that are, are continually to pull, continuing to pull you out of step with Him? If nothing comes to mind, then ask God. You're praying anyway. Ask God to bring things to mind. And I guarantee you, God cares more about His holiness that He will not leave such a prayer unanswered if we are willing to listen. Sixth, we must war. As sins and errant affections come to mind, ask God to help you make war on them. Christians make war on their sin. They, they treat it, in John Owen's words, like a snake that needs to be killed. Find a sin and attack it and then kill it. Don't stop at just attacking it. Don't do little things to stop it. It's not that you need to, need to uh, stop looking at porn less. It, it, it's that you need to kill your lust inside of you. It's not that you need to have more patience with your wife and, and, and stop, stop snapping at her as much. It's that you need to kill the anger and selfishness inside of you. How many of us, and, and this is John Owen's point, how many of us would find a snake in our house and just hit it? How many of us finding a poisonous, venomous snake in our house would just kick at it? None of us. We would kill it for the sake of our children, for the safety of our loved one, so that nobody else gets hurt. Some of you might run and scream and call somebody else to kill it. But still, if there was a snake in your house, a poisonous snake in your house, you wouldn't just do a few minor things to make sure it doesn't bite you. You would get rid of it. Well, that's what John Owen says to do. Let no man think to kill sin with few and easy and gentle strokes. Who, he who hath once smitten a serpent, if he follow not with a blow until it is slain, may repent that he even began the quarrel. And so he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it constantly, must pursue it constantly to the death. I've seen people who wanted to get out of addictions or wanted to get out of sin and, and just seem, they just pick at it instead of killing it. But in times of fasting, we're empowered, we're strengthened by God to kill the serpent of sin. doesn't mean that we then grow up into perfectionism. No, there's going to be new snakes to kill all over again. But that is the war that we live in. That is the war that we are soldiers fighting in to mortify the serpents of sin in our own lives day in and day out. And some serpents can only by killed, be killed by fasting and prayer. And fasting helps us to kill them. Finally, after you've identified, after you've looked, after you've beheld, after you've petitioned, after you've confessed, after you've warred, after you've, you've killed serpents of sin in your life, treasure. This is where we linger on the beautiful forthcoming promises of God. We have a lot that God has already given, and there's more to come. No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. However, that that does not mean that we should think that we should not think on, or we we should not dream about the unceasing kindness of God to come. As, as we will sit with Christ at the King's Feast. doesn't mean that we can't let our minds daydream and linger long on thoughts of how amazing it will be to walk with Jesus in a new heaven and new earth. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Well, what's more true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy than thoughts centered on our forthcoming life with the Redeemer, Jesus Christ? Uh, What about thoughts of the day when God finally splits the sky, sends his Son, and establishes heaven on earth, and God declares from his own throne I will be their God and they will be my people. It's beautiful to treasure 
those promises, to think deeply on them as we fast. So that being said, we have read a text about fasting. Jesus, it doesn't, the text doesn't give us all these tips, but it does say, then they will fast. And so we, we must fast in order to correctly, rightly obey what Jesus says in Matthew 9. And the tips I just gave you hopefully will help you to do that. My friends, we are in a perfect opportunity to long and mourn for Jesus more than we did before. We are in great days of hardship. Texas is just now talking about opening back up the state. It's going to be a rolling opening. And and then they're talking about winter, there being a resurgence of the virus. And not to stir you up to fear, but to stir you up to a greater longing. My friends, this time, if anything, is a great opportunity for you to wean yourself off of love for this life. Love for this world. Love for your career. Your career can be stopped by a microbe. So why not take the opportunity to fast and to just join God's people and say, ah, I wish the kingdom would come. I'm going to pray for the kingdom to come. I'm going to pray for my Jesus to come back. So if you are willing to do that, if you want to apply this passage, I'm going to give you a live opportunity to do, a real life opportunity to do that this Wednesday. Um, Christians in church history used to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays uh, to, to be unified together around that great discipline. And so today, uh, just calling you guys to join us in this season of pandemic. Every Wednesday, if, if you are able to, then please fast with us. If you can on Wednesday, but you can on Monday, then do it on Monday. But fast. Be a part of uh, the fasting, the longing, the mourning for God's kingdom and fulfill what Jesus has said here in Matthew 9. Be an exile living in a foreign place longing to be home. And until we're home, we will fast. Now, we get to the second point, which is much shorter, but just as profound. The question at hand was about fasting. However, underlying these men's question was a deeper problem. In fact, it was the same problem present in the questions presented by the scribes and the Pharisees. Put simply, these groups were trying to fit Jesus into their mold. He had not met their expectations, which made it difficult for them to understand him or accept him. So Jesus' second set of metaphors warns the disciples of John against making this grave error. He says this, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Now, comparisons being made between the old and the new. Old uh, garments, uh, old wineskins, and the new cloth and new wine. So clearly there's something going on with old and new. Here's what I think is happening. I think these groups are seeing Jesus according to old covenant standards, old co- in an old covenant light, instead of seeing him as the, as the new covenant king. They didn't recognize the newness of everything he was bringing. Jeremiah 31 speaks of a new covenant, a new relationship with God that would come, not surprisingly, through Israel's true husband, God himself, the bridegroom. Isaiah, or Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The new had come in Christ. And yet the scribes, the Pharisees, and John's were still trying to understand him by looking at him through the old. They, they were expecting him to fit into the old covenant instead of seeing the old covenant being fulfilled in him. Now, people expected Jesus, to preserve their temple, to restore their temple. Instead of seeing him as the temple, instead of seeing him as the place that we enjoy God's presence, they expected Jesus to uphold the traditions of the elders instead of seeing him as the one who fulfills the law. They expected the Messiah to judge with sinners, to judge sinners instead of eating with them. Consistently, Jesus was not the Messiah the religious elite were expecting, and thus he was not the Messiah they wanted. 
Again, this is not unique to the scribes and Pharisees and John's disciples. Isn't it descriptive of us, modern people? How often have we walked away from the real Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, saying things like, my Jesus would never do that? How often have we been offended by our untamed king, a king who flips over money-changing tables, a king who is willing to call out sin, and also a king who will be willing to bleed a bloody death for for the salvation of humanity? Far too often we expect Jesus to fit our molds to meet our expectations. Instead of questioning whether our molds and expectations are even valid to begin with. Like the groups that came to Jesus in Matthew 9, we want a Messiah that's safe and predictable. A Savior who doesn't save people with tattoos. Or people who drink. Or those millennials. We want a Messiah that's safe and predictable instead of the dangerous, gloriously good Lion of Judah who allows his people to suffer even for their good. The kind of Savior that goes in after the the unreached people groups of China, the unreached people groups in Africa. That is the kind of Savior we have. He's not safe. He's not predictable, but he is good. So beware of trying to fit in the wine of Jesus, the new wine of Jesus, into your old wineskins because he will burst your old wineskins every single time. He came to save sinners, not to be subjugated by your or my finite human expectations. By his gracious sanctification in Matthew 9, by his gracious revelation in Matthew 9, God reveals himself in Christ as he is, not as we want him to be. Now the gold of heaven stood in the presence of the scribes and Pharisees and John's disciples And yet, because that gold did not glitter, they turned away from him. And such rejection, as it continues to go through Matthew's gospel, will eventually lead to his execution. And yet, the the providential irony of it all is that it is as Jesus was being rejected like this, as they were tossing the gold to the side, as they were treating him as just some lost wanderer, as they threw him away like an old broken stone, It was through their rejection that Jesus was slain as the sacrificial lamb by whose blood the new had come, by whose blood the new covenant was established. And in this death, the new was fully ratified. He died, he was buried, and he rose again three days later, displaying the real glory that everybody had failed to see. And the stone, that old broken stone that they tossed away, the gold that they through to the side. The stone that the the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Light from the shadows sprung as he who was crownless was proven king. And in this way, Matthew invites readers like you and me to see Jesus as he is, the mediator of a new and better covenant, the restorer of the fallen world, the one whose death and resurrection has restored us to God. My friends, If you are a believer, I pray that you will address your poor and failing, finite human expectations of your Savior. If you're not saved, if you're not someone who calls yourself a Christian, if you're not someone who believes in the gospel, particularly that that truth that we are sinners, that Jesus died to save sinners, and that he rose again, if you do not believe in that, we, we call you to look at the gold. It may not glitter like you expect it to. It may not be so shiny like all your other treasures, but it is true, real gold. In fact, it is the most valuable gold and the only gold that will last, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you are invited in to feast with the king at his table. My friends, I love you. Thank you for joining us in this time. I just want to end with a quick prayer as we continue to meditate and contemplate on this incredible truth of Jesus, our King. Father God, thank you 
that we have this great discipline of fasting. God, we don't do it as we should. But God, I pray that we will do it more, that we will groan and long for the kingdom to come. But Lord, even more than that, I pray, Father, that the people who have heard this message will address their finite expectations, that they will stop trying to fit Jesus into their old wineskins, but that they will see the new that he has come to bring, a new relationship with you, a new heart by which we can obey and love you. God, thank you for your grace in Jesus. We pray this in your son's name.